might want to put your, uh, have a hold of place in Haggai, chapter 1, briefly, too. Chapters 5 and 6 of Ezra go together, and they're all about the sovereignty, the providence of God. I mean, everywhere you see, or look in this, these two chapters, you see the providence of God manifesting itself. Now, what is the providence of God? I'm going to let the Puritan Thomas Watson answer that question for us. And I've got that in your note. If you, there's one page of notes you can get a hold of. That quote at the beginning, Thomas Watson says in his book, he's got a book called Body of Divinity, and in that book he says this about providence. God's works of providence are the acts of his most holy, wise, and powerful government of his creatures and of their actions. And other places, and I've got select quotes. He says, there is no such, things, no such thing as blind fate, but there is a providence that guides and governs the world. Providence is God's ordering all issues and events of things after the counsel of his will to his own glory. The providence of God is the queen and governess of the world. It is the eye that sees and the hand that turns all the wheels in the universe. God is not like a craftsman that builds a house and then leaves it, but rather like a pilot. He steers the ship of the whole creation. It used to be years ago, a couple centuries ago, maybe even a century ago or so, people used to talk about the providence of God. They would say, in fact, they wouldn't even say the word God. They would say providence led me to this or that. Speaking of God, they, would, they were so intertwined the terms, but today's that, that's not the case. You don't hear people say, oh, it was, it was an act of providence. Nobody says that anymore. But I believe these chapters will show us that it is God who is governing and guiding the events of history. Now, how does providence show itself in this section? Uh, we can see it in seven ways. First of all, God's providence shows itself through the preaching of the word. It shows itself through the preaching of the word. Look at chapter Ezra, chapter 5, verse 1. When the prophets Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Idu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Now, we took a little detour, and by the way, let's go to Haggai chapter 1. We took a little detour um, from the book of Ezra the last few weeks, which led us to the doorstep of Haggai, which we needed to go there because we needed to see, he's preaching, one of the guys preaching, now, I told you Zechariah, we're going to leave him alone for the time being because there's a plan in place to go through Zechariah at a future date, but Haggai and Zechariah are preaching messages to the people in Ezra's time, they are contemporaries, they lived at the same time. And so we go to Haggai to see what they said. We saw that. We, we went through that book. And we found that God, uh, and he definitely made an impact with his messages. We found that God used the messages not only to convict the people of their selfishness and their selfish pursuits, but also to encourage them to continue to build the temple, something they had delayed for 16 long years. The question is, uh, how did God show his providence through the preaching of Haggai? And I think in two ways. First of all, the Lord revealed his word to Haggai. At the beginning of every single message that Haggai preaches of the four messages, he starts out by talking about the word of the Lord coming to him. That's the first thing that happens. For example, go to Haggai 1.1. First message, in the second year of Darius the king, that's where we're at in Ezra, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai. to Zechariah, and verse 2, he says, thus says the Lord of hosts. That's how he begins his message. God's word came to me. I preached the word that came to me. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Another example. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, 
And he does this. He preaches the word of the Lord. So the Lord, as always, took the initiative, as he does, and, uh, and, and he first reveals his word to Haggai, who then relates the message God gave to the people. That's the first way the providence of God is seen in the messages preached. Secondly, the Lord stirred the people through the preaching of Haggai. Go to Haggai chapter 1, verse 12. And it says there, Zerubbabel, this is after the message is preached by Haggai, then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai said, the messenger of the Lord spoke by the commission of the Lord. Again, he says it. Uh, to the people saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, and he stirs up the spirit of Joshua, and he stirs up the spirit of all the people, and they came and worked, and they completed the work. So you see here that God works in connection with his word. He always does this. He works in connection with his word. That's why he wants people to preach the word. That's why he wants people to listen to the word. That's how he works. That's his providence in action. He works through the word of God. How are we going to serve God effectively? How are we going to serve him as he wants us to unless we hear the preaching of the word and do what God's word, not what the preacher says, but what the word of God says, or we meditate upon it privately in our own homes. The Lord works providentially through the preaching of his word. That's the first thing we want to say. Now go back to, Hag to Ezra chapter 5. And let me show you another evidence of God's providence in the matter of preaching. Verse 1 again. You say, are you ever going to leave verses 1 and 2? Yes, we're going to do that. I know we've quoted these verses like a million times already. Verse 1 again. When the prophets Haggai, the prophet, Zechariah, the son of Idu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem, in the name of the God of Israel who was over them, it says. These men prophesied in God's name. They prophesied in his authority. It's his word. They had no authority on their own. Uh, they could say whatever they wanted to, but it was without authority until the word of God was preached, and then there's authority. There's real authority then, backed by God himself, when the word of God is preached under the divine authority, God is exalted in that situation. And they preached in the name of God who was over them, it says. We don't get one verse in Ezra chapter 5, and immediately we see the providence of God. He's over them. Um, it was he who was over Judah. Now, if you were to go in that time, you were able to talk to the people of Judah and say, who's over you guys? Who's superintending you guys? They might say, well, king of Persia, the governor sent by Persia is over us, the local governor, and that would be true. God has placed a human authority over us, and we're to obey human government, the scripture says. We're definitely to do that. But who's the ultimate authority over you and in, over the world? And today over America, it's the Lord, right? He's over all things and all people. And, and you know, I thought of the hymn. I've been thinking about hymns lately uh, in connection with these messages, and I thought of the hymn because they're, it kind of came to my mind, this is my father's world. In fact, we sang a hymn tonight that talked, I think the first one that talked about uh, divine sovereignty and providence and things of that issue. But I thought about this is my father's world. The title alone is good enough, right, to tell us the whole story. But besides the title, I love the third verse, full of great theology. It says this, this is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. He's the ruler. He rules over all. Number two, God's providence shows itself through the oversight of God's people. Not only through preaching, but it shows itself through the oversight of God's people. Look at chapter 5, verse 3. Yes, we're moving on to verse 3. You'll be glad to know. At that time, 
Tatenai, the governor of the province, province, this is a Persian governor, beyond the river in Shethar Bazanai, that's a, an assistant to Tatenai, and their colleagues, all this Persian coalition, they come to them, they go to the people, the elders of Jew, the Jews who are building the temple, and they spoke to them saying, verse 3, <clears throat> who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? Then we told them, according to, according, accordingly, what the names of the men were who were reconstructing the, the building. But the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them until a report came, could come to Darius, and then a written reply be returned concerning it. Now, the first two years of the reign of Darius were greatly troubled. He had a lot of revolts to put down. He has this huge empire he's ruling. You can imagine trying to keep up with one country like America or any country, but, and then he's got all these other countries he's watching over. So he's always got these revolts. He has to keep a close eye on things. And that is probably why these Persian officials are coming to Judah. They see this building going up. What, what, what are you guys doing now? They're always suspicious throughout the empire. What, what's happening now? What are you doing? What, why is this building going up? But they were just doing their job as officials. They were fact-finding. They asked some questions that could be very intimidating. Look at verse 3 that we said in verse 3. Uh, who, who told you guys to build this building? Where did you get the authority to do this from? We want names. Who authorized this project? Now, these are Persian officials. You see how this can be intimidating? And your name gets on the list, right? This doesn't look too good for the guys. I mean, they already had internal issues like discouragement. And Haggai had to deal with all the internal issues like that. You know, this isn't as good as Solomon's temple. They got discouraged about that. And now they got other problems that get questioned by Persian authorities. Did you guys get a building permit? Where's your authority to build this at? You know, <clears throat> this is very intimidating to their, their minds. And with this going on, all of a sudden, we have this, one of the most comforting verses, and not only the Old Testament, but the whole scripture. This is one of the best verses I've ever read in my entire life. Verse 5, but the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews, and they did not stop them. You know, even though there's no building permit, no authorization from the proper officials, uh, there's no licensed general contractor. None of that. They are protected by God. I mean, they're not, they're not doing anything illegal, but their enemies had already opposed them one time and discouraged them, and now the Persian government is involved. That's the last people you want involved in this situation, right? And they're asking questions. But whatever fear they may have felt, however they felt, however discouraging the situation may have appeared, nevertheless, it says, the great verse, the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews. What a great verse. That verse ought to be trumpeted constantly, by the way. I never heard, you never hear that verse ever. You know, it's a historical fact that the Persian, uh, Persian king employed spies in the kingdom. That he would, they would go throughout the kingdom to see what's going on. They had so many revolts. What is going on here? Anyway, find out what's going on. He sends spies out. They refer to the spies as the king's eye or the king's ear. These guys would get information uh, because the king was not omniscient. He, was, he didn't know everything. He wasn't omnipresent. He couldn't be everywhere. So he sent spies out to keep him informed about what was going on, anything suspicious going on. What's this building over here in Judah? What's going on here? That was the best he could do. There's always been spies throughout history, though. You know, there were spies in the Revolutionary War. There were spies in the Civil War for both sides. <laughs> always spies. You find out what the enemy's up to when you have spies. But God doesn't need any spies to keep him informed. His eyes see everything. He hears everything. He knows everything. 
He's everywhere a president wants. Nothing escapes his attention. He's watching over the elders of the Jews. This is God's watchful providence. It's a, it's a great truth. The person officials could easily have shut this operation down. They could have said, hey, no more. You're done. But, and, they, and they may have done that except for one thing. God said, no, you're not doing that. You're not shutting it down. He saw to it that they didn't. And so they had to write a letter to the king. And, and this would take, sorry, they had to write a letter to the king. I've got this cough I can't shake. <laughs> and they would, they, you know, they would, it would take a time to get this letter, this reply back. Now, some of you may be shocked to know there was no email during this time. So mail would move slowly in the ancient world, very slowly. However, Darius was a smart guy, King Darius. And he set about to make <coughs> the, the, the highways of Persia a priority. And so he, uh, he made that a priority. And the Persian Royal Road, which they went for 1,700 miles, and it was carefully maintained. And when, you know, they'd get a pothole, unlike Tampa... When they would get a pothole, they would try to fix it, except and so, so your car wouldn't get out of alignment. It has happened on Fletcher Avenue with me. Uh, the Persians also invented horseshoes. And so they would facilitate travel over the royal roads. They also had posts every 15 miles or so. And so when you carried mail to one post, a new rider would get on a new horse, carry mail to the next post. And so they, they were brilliant with this. So they improved the road system, improved the mail system. Even with that, I have read that it could take, um, if the roads were properly maintained even, it could take two months to get the mail to the king, get the reply back. It might even take four or five months. So you're going to have a delay of two, to, two months to five months. And any further delay, are these people good with delays? No, they're not. Any further delay could demoralize them. They're already given to discouragement. They're given to selfish pursuits if they're not careful. And they've, but they've repented of all this. And they're back on track, and God is blessing them. And so God is keeping the work going. It says in verse 5 again, the eye of their God was on them. That phrase means this, that God, uh, that, that there was a tent of care that one, it's talking about a tent of care that one exercises on behalf of the object of his concern. So God was concerned about these people. They're the special object of his love. And so he takes care with them. He's looking out for them. You know, the Lord look out, looks out for his own. He sees us in our trying circumstances, and he knows what we're going through, and he understands all these things, like in Exodus 2, when God looked on the children of Israel, and he saw, it says in Exodus 2, 20 to 23, he saw they were in trouble, he saw their bondage, and it says he had compassion upon them. God sees this. Now, we can look at God's providence in, one of two, in, in two different ways. First of all, in a positive way, and secondly, in a negative way, positively. There are things that happen because God has ordained they happen. And we, that's how we always think of it, right? God has ordained certain things happen, so therefore they happen. On the other hand, hand, there are things that do not happen because God has ordained it that way. That is preventive providence. There are certain things he does not allow to happen. Thank God for that, right? We don't know. We don't even know what that is. What, we could never even know in this life. What has he not allowed? How has he protected us in numerous cases? You know, he kept Daniel from the lion's den. When Daniel was thrown in the lion's den, by rights he should have been eaten alive. He protected him. He kept the three Hebrews from being burnt up in the, in the fiery furnace. God's preventive maintenance, or preventive maintenance, preventive providence, which maybe we could call it preventive maintenance too. He does this based on his will and purposes. Now, I, how, how does all this work? I don't know. 
I don't know how all it works. I mean, they were delayed earlier at one time, but now they're not delayed. They were in sin earlier too, by the way, when they were delayed. At any rate, they send the letter to Darius. Look, here's, we got the information you want. We, we found out some facts. We're going to send you a report about what's going on here in Jerusalem. Look at verse 6. This is the copy of the letter, which Tatenai, the governor of the province beyond the river, and Shethar Bazanai and his colleagues, the officials who were beyond the river, sent to Darius the king. They sent a report to him in which it was written thus, To Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we have gone to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God, which is being built with huge stones, and beams were being laid in the walls, and the work is going on with great care, and it's succeeding in their hands. That's the kind of thing Dave wants to hear when a building project's going on. The work is going on with great care, and it's succeeding in their hands, right? No disasters. These people recognized that the work was succeeding. Why was it succeeding? Because God's in it, right? He's, his eyes upon them, and he's making sure this happens. As I say, thank God for the times that he prevents things from happening to us, as well as the, time, the times that he ordains things to happen. All right, number three, God's providence shows itself through the discipline of Judah. It shows itself through the discipline of Judah. Look at verse 9. Then we asked those, those elders. Now, this is the reply to Darius the king. This is not the reply. This is the letter to Darius the king. They're stating to him what, what happened. Okay, and they're telling him, we talked to the elders of the Jews, and we said to them thus, verse 9, who issued you a decree to rebuild this temple and to finish this structure? We also asked them their names, so as to inform you, that we might write down the names of the men who were at their head. They're trying to get the leaders of this operation. Thus they answered us, saying, We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and are rebuilding the temple that, we, that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers had provoked the God of heaven to wrath, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the Chaldean, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. Now, in this letter, they asked the Jews, Again, the question, who built, who's authorized you to build this temple? Answer begins in verse 11. The Jews say, we're the, we're the servants of God. A great king back in the day built this temple. Solomon? They don't give his name, but that's who, who built it. And they go on to admit that they had provoked the God of heaven so much with their sin that his wrath came upon them. How did, it, how did that happen? Well, look at verse 12. He says, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. That's very interesting. Because that's who the king was at Babylon who took over uh, Judah, who conquered Judah, Nebuchadnezzar. No nation would readily admit to another nation, hey, we were defeated by Babylon. You wouldn't admit that as such. But these guys, are, they're, they're saying, hey, the reason Babylon captured us is because God was behind it. He's, he wanted this to happen. Now, the ancient world had a belief that if a nation was conquered, uh, it was because the conquering nation was stronger than the conquered nation. The gods were, the gods were stronger, not the only the people. The gods were stronger. But the Jews are saying something that sounds very strange. They're indirectly teaching, in this, in this lesson, they're teaching these guys, the Persian officials, that God is sovereign, indirectly. And they say in his providence, God permitted Babylon to capture Judah. Amazing. They said, in effect, it was God who caused us to lose the Babylon. It was God who caused King Nebuchadnezzar to defeat Babylon to defeat us. He did it because we sinned against them. Our fathers sinned against them, and his wrath came down upon us. Notice they refer to God twice as the God of heaven, not another deity. You have all these polytheistic religions in the ancient world. God's all over the place. And they only say one thing, he's the God of heaven, twice. 
Now the testimony from them was this. He gave them into the hands, verse 12, of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He did it. It was his doing. Now that God would do this, that they would admit this to another nation, that God would do this shows God's utter disdain for sin and disobedience, how much he hates it. And so in his providence, this is what we learn from this, in his providence he takes disciplinary measures if it needs to be. He will do that. Now, he will not send his church that Christ died for into another Babylonian captivity of sorts. He's not going to do that. But nevertheless, even today, he disciplines. We're not Israel. We're the church. But he disciplines his people. He still does this in the ways that he does it now. Just like Hebrews 12 says, Hebrews 12, 7 and 8, What son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Yes, even discipline. The discipline of God's children is included in the wise providence of God. Now, we may not like that, but that's part of the providence of God. And that's what we see in these verses, that God disciplined his people. They recognized it, they understood it, they accepted it, they confessed it, <clears throat> and they said God's, God's, God's sovereign. Number four, God's providence shows itself through Cyrus, king of Persia. It shows itself through Cyrus, king of Persia. Look at chapter 5, verse 13. However... They go on with their information in the letter. However, in the first year, the Jews were speaking to the Persian authorities still in this letter. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree, a decree to rebuild his house of God. Also the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple to, in Jerusalem and brought them to the temple of Babylon. These King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon and they were given to one whose name was Shezbazar, whom he had appointed governor. He said to him, take these utensils, go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt in this place. Then that Shezbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. And from then until now it has been under construction, and it is not yet completed. Now if it please the king, let a search be conducted in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon. If it be that a, king, a decree was issued by King Cyrus to rebuild this house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king send to us his decision concerning this matter. And so they, they asked the question in verse 9, who issued a decree to rebuild this temple? In verse 13, they answered it, it was Cyrus. The Jews said, Cyrus told us to do this. And not only that, but he got the vessels, he recouped the vessels from the, that, that Nebuchadnezzar had captured from us, and he recouped them and gave them back to us. And after these things, they, they reported to the king, they asked Darius in the letter to, to, to conduct a search. So they tell them the whole story. Look, this is what happened. This is what the Jews say that happened. They say this happened. They say Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild the temple. We don't know. Can you check on this? Conduct a search. See if you can find documentation to this effect. So look at chapter 6, verse 1. Then King Darius issued a decree, and search was made in the archives. They go searching where the treasures were stored in Babylon. They, by the way, archaeology found that, that the archives of kings in that time for Persia were linked to the treasury, and that's why it says that. Verse 2, in Ekbatan in the fortress, which is in the province of Media, a scroll was found, and there was written in it as follows, memorandum, in the first year of King Cyrus. you got to love this when you're reading this. Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God of Jerusalem. Let the temple, the place where sacrifices are offered, be rebuilt, and let its foundations be retained, its height being 60 cubits, its width 60 cubits, with three layers of huge stones and one layer of timbers, and let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, 
Also let the gold and silver utensils of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem, be brought to Babylon and be returned and brought to their place in the temple of Jerusalem, and you shall put them in the house of God. Well, everything they say is true. It's important to know, by the way, you need to know this, that the reign of Darius, we're talking about King Darius and King Cyrus, the reign of King Darius began about 17 years after the decree of Cyrus. 17 years so they don't, they're, they're wondering, what's, what's going on with this decree from Cyrus? Nobody knows about it 17 years later. And so king kept, kings kept records of their kingdom activities. They were preserved for future generations. So Darius begins to search, and he starts with the places that Cyrus lived. Now, understand, Cyrus was kind of a snowbird. Cyrus didn't like, you know, cold weather necessarily or different kinds of weather. And so what he did was he lived in three different places. He lived in Babylon, chapter 6, verse 1. He lived in Babylon during the winter. Better climate during the winter. That's where the search began than other places. And then he lived in Susa, the capital of Persia, in the springtime. And then in verse 2, he lived in Ecbatana, which was a city of the Medes, in the summertime because it was comfortable climate due to the high elevation. So he was making the circuit of, hey, where's it the most comfortable place to live? I'm going there. And so he did that. More than a no, normal snowbird, he went to three different places. And they find, so they go around to all these places looking for the scroll. Where's the information at, the documentation that so-called Cyrus, that Cyrus supposedly said that the Jews could rebuild the temple? Where's it at? They look for the information, and they finally find it in Ecbatana in the fortress. Ecbatana was a fortress city, today northern Iran, by the way. And verses 1 to 5 confirm that, yes, Cyrus has written this decree to rebuild the temple just like the Jews had said. Did Cyrus actually make this decree? Yes, he did. But did Cyrus make it, did he take it upon himself as the magnanimity of his own heart to say, hey, I want to help these Jews out? No, God did it, right? God decreed. By now you should know this. Go back to chapter 1, verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 1, God's behind it. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. This is, well, we we're not going to labor the point because we already did a few weeks ago with that, but just know this, that providence has shown itself again through King Cyrus. It's just again and again in this chapter, Fifthly, God's providence shows itself through an overwhelming response. It shows itself through an overwhelming response. This is the response. Now, Darius has got the letter. He has understood it. He has made the search for the documentation to back up the claims of the Jews. He's found it. Now he gives his, his word. Here's what I, he gives his decision on what to do. Look at verses 6 and 7. Chapter 6. Now, therefore, Darius says, to Tatanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bezanai, and your colleagues, the officials of the provinces beyond the river, keep away from there, he says. <laughs> Leave the work on the house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Now in verses 6 to 12, King Darius, and we'll read all these verses, gives his reply in the form of a letter. His words are very direct. To sum up, he says this, look, King Cyrus, the king of Persia, issued this decree, 
I'm going to enforce this decree as another king of Persia. That's what he does. So he says to Tatenai and his colleagues, keep away from there. In other words, stay away from the temple. Stay away from the property. Don't bother those people. Let them build. Now that term in verse uh, 6, keep away from there, is actually a legal term, meaning that the accusation being brought in the letter against the Jews has been rejected. By the king's word, he says Persian law has now entered the picture. Persian law is now in the picture, and he says, don't mess with the Jews, or you're going to be found guilty of breaking the law. I've rejected this accusation because I found the documentation. And he, he then ramps it up, making a statement again in verse 7, leave the work on this house of God alone. And he says, he talks about the governor of, uh, by the way, in verse 7, the governor of the Jews. If you've been wondering where Zerubbabel is, that's the, that's the governor of the Jews. So there's some self-governance in the province in Judah, but it's also overseen by Tatenai, the governor from the Persians. But the message is doubly clear. Leave the work on the house of God alone. The Lord's definitely favoring the Jews in his providence. Look at verse 8. Moreover, Darius says, I'm not done yet, Darius says, I issue a decree concerning what you are to do for these elders of Judah in the rebuilding of this house of God. The full cost is to be paid to these people from the royal treasury out of the taxes of the provinces beyond the river, and that without delay. Whatever's needed, whatever they need, both young bulls, rams, lambs for burnt offering to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and anointing oil, as the priest, uh, as the priest in Israel, Ju uh, Jerusalem requested, is to be given to them daily without fail. And so in accordance with the decree of Cyrus, this is what Cyrus had said as well, Darius insists that the building project is going to be unwritten by, underwritten by the Persian government. Furthermore, the sacrifices are, the daily sacrifices, and do it without delay. In verse 4, Cyrus had told them to fund it from the royal treasury, and now there he says, go ahead and do it. This is amazing. He says, for, not only do I want you to leave those guys alone, let them build, I, we're going to fund the whole project. He's going all out. He's lavishly granting the Jews favor, tremendous favor. You know, anything else, King? Maybe you have a prayer request? Yes, I do have a prayer request. Look at verse 10. And that they may offer acceptable sacrifice to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. By the way, while you're at it, I have a prayer request. Can you pray for me and my sons? One of, the, one of which would be king one day, one day. Now, Darius, not necessarily a Christian, <laughs> not a believer. He actually worships a false god. But Darius had a policy that he would ask all the peoples in his realm. He knew they all served different gods. And he would say, can you pray for me? That was his policy. And that won him favor with the people as well. So he's a smart politician. Nevertheless, he still asked for prayer. And by the way, isn't it true we should pray for those in authority? 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, Romans 13. We should pray for human government, those of us, those who are in authority over us. We should pray for them, yes. Whether they ask for it or not, whether they're Christians or not, we should pray for them. But wait, Darius is not through yet with his lavish con concern for the Jews. Look at verse 11. And I issued a decree, Darius says, that any man who violates this edict, a timber shall be drawn from his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a refuge, a refuge heap on account of this. There's a penalty to be incurred. You don't carry out my word, I have a penalty that you're going to incur. You're, it's death by impalement. You don't carry out what I say, you're going to die, okay, by impalement. You know impalement was not a good way to die? Very gruesome. I won't tell you everything, but on one side of it, they would plant a beam in the ground firmly, okay? They would sharpen the top of it, 
to a point, and they would, they would uh, impale the individual. I won't go into all the gory detail, okay? They would impale the individual and let him, let, leave him there to hang until he died. Very, very painful death. And Persia did that periodically. And he says, if you guys mess around and don't do what I say, you're going to die by impalement. I don't think anybody's going to take him up on this. In addition to that, your house is going to be turned into a pile of rubble. You want to try to defy the king? No, I don't think so. And there's a final word from the king in verse 12. The king, Darius says, the polytheist says, may the God who has caused his name to dwell there in Jerusalem overthrow any king or people who attempts to change it so as to destroy this house of God in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have issued this, this, this decree. Let it be carried out with all diligence. Darius sounds like a prophet here. God's established his name in Jerusalem. That's what it says, in Deut- it says that in Deuteronomy 12. He's going to establish his name. However he felt about the God of heaven, he still gives him, he still says he's sovereign, at least over Jerusalem. You know, and this is an overwhelming response. Amazing. He says, in effect, you know, not only are, am, am I, are, are you to build this, you have permission from the Persian government to build this building, we're going to fund it, and we're going to see to it that you guys are protected, and there's a penalty for not for interference, and I even want God to condemn you if that happens, if, if, they, if they try anything. Overwhelming response. What was the result? Look at verse 13. Then Tatenai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bazanai, and their colleagues carried out the decree with all diligence, just as King Darius had said. I would do the same thing, wouldn't you? You better get on it, boys, and get this done. And they did. You know, in God's providence, we are often more blessed than we deserve. In fact, any blessing we get is we don't deserve, right? But we serve a generous God. Even he can bless us even extravagantly. One, one guy called this a, one guy called this a, a pro, his, this providence, a, an extravagant providence, he said. Just like Ephesians 3.20 says, he's able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think to him be the glory. Who knew that this would be the reply? These trembling Jews over in Jerusalem trying to build this temple get questioned by the big Persian government who rules the world this time, probably intimidated by them, and this happens. Amazing. This is the providence of God. Number six, God's providence shows itself through several kings of Persia. It shows itself through several kings of Persia. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 is a great verse. It says, And the elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet, and Zechariah the son of Idu. And they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia, king of Persia. This temple was completed on the third day of the month Adar. It was the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Now, the rest of this chapter chapter is a tribute to the providence of God. Verse 14 first revisits these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, and the role they played in preaching. And it says they, they were successful in building through, notice the word through, through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah. They were not successful apart from that. And if you think that preaching the word of God is not important, you're sadly mistaken. Because God blesses his word when it's preached, and God thinks it's important. The word of God and what God calls success go hand in hand together. It's very important. But what about the kings of Persia? Well, the building is finally completed according to the command of two parties, it says in verse 14. The command of God and the decree of the three kings of Persia, Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes. Now, we know about Cyrus and Darius already, right? God's worked through their lives. But what about Artaxerxes? Well, there's one problem there. 
He lived about a century later after the other two kings. A century later. He's included here, though, because Artaxerxes will later give the authorization for Nehemiah to build the walls of Jerusalem. So all three kings were used by God to favor the Jews and allow them to build. They were special instruments used by God to favor the Jews. But did you notice a very important word in verse 14? Look at verse 14 again, the second half of it. It's the word and, A-N-D. It says, they finished building according to the command of God, the God of Israel, and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. It's God's command and the king's decree. There's a word for that in theology, and they call it concurrence. Have you ever heard that word, concurrence? The book, Biblical Doctrine, defines it like this. God's operation with created things, God's operation with people, in other words, causing them through their properties to act. In other words, other words God brings about his providential purposes through human beings. That's what he does. In the case of the Persian kings, it was God who acted first, and then the kings carried out his will. God decreed that the Jews return to the land, and then decrees are issued by the kings for the Jews to return to their land. And so they work together, but the Lord's working behind the scenes all this time. Look at verse 22, chapter 6. And they observed the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had caused them to rejoice, and had turned, had turned, their heart, had turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them, to encourage them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. He turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to encourage them in the work of the house of God. Now, let me face, first say a word about the king of Assyria. Because you're, you're thinking, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about the kings of Persia. <laughs> you know, you always got to dig to find this information out, right? Why does it say the king of Assyria? Well, it has to do with the continuity. The Persian Empire was basically virtually the same thing as the Babylonian Empire which was virtually the same thing as the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrians were captured, captured first by the Babylonians, who took over their empire, and then the Persians took over the Babylonian Empire, and so it all was co about continuity. It was the same basic empire, so sometimes they refer to the kings as the king of Assyria as a result, historically. Even Nehemiah, in Nehemiah 9.32, speaks of the hardship that had come upon the Jews, it says, from the day of the kings of Assyria to this day. And even the, the, the historian, a guy named Herodotus back in the day, spoke of Babylon as the strongest city in Assyria. Because they're all the same place, basically. For them, it was about historical continuity. But don't lose the forest with the trees. I just wanted to explain that. It was the Lord who turned the heart of the king toward them. And what, what verse does that remind us of? Proverbs 21.1, right? Which says, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wishes. Isn't that amazing? The king, or the Lord can take, the king of kings, can take the mightiest king ruling over a mighty empire, like Cyrus, like Darius, like Nebuchadnezzar, and he can break through that heart of stone. He can break through the heart of a polytheistic, uh, godless idol worshiper and get him to do his will. He can break through that heart and get that man to do his will and do it willingly, as a matter of fact. It's an amazing thing. It's phenomenal. And he can cause the, these kings, these pagan kings, to encourage his people, which they did. The people were greatly encouraged to do God's work because the kings encouraged them. Finally, God's providence shows itself through a heart filled with joy. It shows itself through a heart filled with joy. Look at chapter 6, verse 16. And the sons of Israel, this is the temple, temple's completed. Sons of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the exiles celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy 
they offered for the dedication of this temple of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, corresponding to the number of the tribes of Israel. Then they appointed the priests to their division and the Levites in their orders for the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. The exiles observed the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together, all of them were pure. Then they slaughtered the Passover lamb for the exiles, both for their brothers and the priests and for themselves. The sons of Israel who returned from exile and all those who had separated themselves from the impurity of the nations to the land to join them to seek the Lord God of Israel ate the Passover. And they observed the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days with joy for the Lord had caused them to rejoice and turned the heart of the king of Syria toward them to encourage them to do God's work. Now as an aside, the text... You'll be glad to know. I'm sure you're all waiting to hear this information. The text, which had been in Aramaic since chapter 4, verse 8, is now back to Hebrew in chapter 6, verse 19. It goes back to Hebrew. Now, just look at the celebration that takes place, though. The building is finally completed. Verse 15 tells us when. That date is March 12, 515 B.C. About four and a half years after they resumed the temple building, there's this great celebration. They're dedicating the temple. There's all these offerings. They're even offering 12 goats for the 12 tribes of Israel, and not all 12 tribes are even there. They're thinking about the future. According to verse 9, they celebrate the Passover in April. People are excited. They're separating themselves from impurity, all these things. But verses 16 and 22 are very important in this regard in relation to the celebration. Look at verse 16 again. All the sons of Israel, the priests, the Levites, celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy, it says. Verse 22 they observed the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had caused them to rejoice. There it is again, the providence of God. Again and again, they were joyful. Why? Because the Lord caused them to rejoice. By the way, another aside here. The word for rejoice, Hebrew word is my favorite Hebrew word. It's samic. Or should we say samic? I had a teacher in Clearwater Christian College, Dr. Oliver. They called me samic all the time. And I thought, why does he call me samic? And I found out later why. It's that word. In Hebrew, it means to be glad or joyful with the whole disposition as indicated by its association with the heart. The heart is behind all this. The statement will later come from Nehemiah. In Nehemiah 8.10, the joy of the Lord is our strength, is your strength. So God gladdens the heart of his people. As they finish the temple, as they do his work, he gladdens their heart as he gladdens our heart. Now you've heard probably of the famous musician Franz Joseph Haydn. He made all this classical music back in the day. Now, for his time, you know, we would consider very somber music today, right? For his time, he was a little upbeat, okay? He was a little joyous, maybe a little too joyous for some, maybe a little too vibrant, maybe a little too hip for some of the people around. The people at his time, very somber, you know, nothing out of place, don't, don't get anybody up, agitated out there, you know? And uh, some church people who apparently knew little, very little of joy were upset because Haydn's producing his music is a little upbeat, and they criticize him for it. Listen to his answer to them. He says, since God has given me a cheerful heart, he will forgive me for serving him cheerfully. <laughs> you know, the work of God is a serious matter, I know that. Worship of God is a serious matter. But I think the Lord will not be displeased if we serve him joyfully. And he, gave, he gives him joy in his providence. And this is a prayer we might want to consider. Lord, help me to serve you joyfully. Now you say, as we come to the end of this chapter, you say, does, that, does the Lord still work providentially in the world today, or is it just the Old Testament? Well, since he's the God of history, 
not limited to any generation, I would say he still works providentially, right? Stands to reason. And he works providentially in the lives of all his people in every generation. The eye of our God is still upon us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time together for your word once again. We know that uh, we go through a lot of details in the Old Testament, a lot of things we're not accustomed to a lot of times, but help us to see the truth that is taught there, that you are truly a providential God, providentially guiding your people. We thank you for that. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.